0: Welcome. Glad we're all having a good time. All the merrymaking is a lovely, lovely sound. So, my name is Steve, and it is good to see all of you. It is my job now to open the Word of God and to give us the occasion to meditate upon Christ's words for a few minutes. So today, we're going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter... 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, starting in verse 1. So, hear the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him. What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So over the last several months, what we've been doing is talking about our calling as people of God, our vocations as his sons and daughters, and we've talked about the specific callings that God has for us uh, in our lives, like the the very particular facet that he cuts out of the diamond through which the light is refracted by our lives in a very unique way, in a a way that is refracted by no other person. We've talked about that in the beginning, and then over the last few weeks, what I've been doing, and you did one, yes, uh, you also did one. Uh, we've been talking about the general callings of Christians, like just by virtue of calling on the name of the Lord, there are certain things, that, there are certain vocations, certain callings that all of us share in common. And so today, we're gonna get at the very heart of our common calling together, that each of us is a servant of the Lord. The truth is, uh, you know, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, this is not new. This is not a fresh revelation to you. However, though we know it in principle, we often forget it in practice. And the reason is because all of us woke up this morning into a world that is telling us at every moment to do the opposite. Christ says, serve one another as I have served you. Our world tells us, no, 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 no. Everything around us, every message we receive urges us to climb higher, do more, achieve greatness. We fetishize celebrity. Like, who are the great ones among us? Is it the the wise and the humble? No. (laughs) No, it's the wealthy and the well-known and the powerful. And from the moment we can understand speech, we are told to climb and achieve, become great, and accumulate as much as we can. Now, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with climbing and achieving and accumulating, there's nothing wrong with that on its surface, that's fine. There's great suffering that can be alleviated and great justice that can be done by helping people to elevate themselves out of their circumstances, that is absolutely true, but You know, just as much as I do, that our thirst for greatness goes well beyond a concern for justice and an alleviation of suffering. We're taught to be great so that we might be valuable in this world. So that we might be loved and adored and sought after, looked up to. Those are the messages we're receiving every single day. So when Jesus comes into our midst and he says, But I am among you as one who serves." We almost don't have the vocabulary or the the mental structures to understand what he means. And so we've got to contend honestly with this chosen vocation of our Lord. And the truth is, taken as a whole, there's probably, as I said, no other vocation, no other calling that is closer to the heart of Christ than this, servant of God. And if we miss this calling on our Lord, we miss almost everything. So let's consider this passage from John 13. And the summary of all of it is very simple, it's this. We are called to be servants of Christ because we ourselves have been served by Christ. We are called to be servants of Christ because we ourselves have been served by Christ. Now, in order to look at this, And understand it, let's look at it under three headings. Number one, the pattern of Christ's service. Number two, the scope of Christ's service. And number three, the power to serve like Christ. So the pattern, the scope, and the power. Number one, the pattern of Christ's service. Now, um, before we learn anything in this passage about how Christ serves his disciples, The gospel writer gives us an insight into what Jesus was thinking about right before he performed this act of service. This is crazy. So look at John 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, listen to what he's thinking, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, we'll stop there for a second. So Jesus is at supper with his disciples and there were three things on his mind. Apparently, these are the things he was meditating upon as he was eating. Number one, he knew that his hour had come to depart. Number two, the Father had given all things into his hands. And number three, that he had come from God and was going back to God. These are the things that are going on in the mind of Jesus Christ as he's eating with his disciples. To summarize all of that, Jesus is meditating on his favored position at the Father's right hand. He was considering that God gave him authority over all things. Like not one square inch of the entire creation was left out of the authority of Jesus Christ. He considered that from eternity past his name filled the stanzas of the songs sung in heaven and that in eternity to come a great congregation made up of all the nations streaming into the kingdom of God will stand and praise him and he will stand at the center as their lord and king while they shout accolades about he who has done the redemptive work of God. He is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. All shall bow to him with glad hearts. And so Jesus is meditating on these things. And he gets up from the table. And what we would expect is for him to enact a magnificent display of omnipotence at this point. Now, My disciples, now is the time for you to fully recognize who I am. No more hiding, no more secrets. Behold, God is with you. But instead of a display of omnipotence, Jesus performs an act of profound self-humiliation. The first thing Christ does is to dress like a slave. Verse four, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And don't underestimate the power of that act of taking on the garments of a slave. Think of Mahatma Gandhi, like in in the early years of his struggle for Indian civil rights, He wore the clothing of Europeans. You see early pictures of him. He's dressed in a suit and a tie. And the reason why is because he was educated in Europe. But if you've ever seen a picture of him, more than likely, you've probably seen him wearing his white homespun loincloth. That's what he adopted later. He began wearing this because it was a symbol of the rejection of British colonial power and more to the point, central to his identification with the poor of India who suffered under colonial policies. And so when Jesus rose from the table, he did not drape the garment of a king upon himself, but rather clad himself in the clothing of a slave. And in doing that, he identified himself with the absolute lowest members of society. And then, having dressed as a slave, he performs the work of a slave. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The washing of feet in first-century Israel was a practical necessity. But it was such debased work that the Jews actually had laws mandating that that kind of work could not be done by fellow Jews. It had to be done by Gentile slaves. So not only is Jesus identifying himself with the lowly class, but he descends even further by taking up the mantle of an outside, hated, rejected people. So as he was contemplating his own glory, this is what he did. For Jesus, this debased and lowly act was the next natural step after his contemplations of his own glory. Let that sink in for a moment. Now as he does his work, Jesus comes to Peter. And here's where we begin to understand what it is that Christ is actually doing. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, if you go to the commentaries on this verse, uh, they talk about how in the Greek, which is the language this is written in, Peter's protest is not a smooth sentence like we have here in the English. Lord, do you wash my feet? Rather, Peter is like, it's, it's grammatically awkward. It's almost like he's stuttering. L- Lord, are, are you going to wash my feet? It, it's, a, it's an expression of astonishment. Remember back in chapter 6 of John, when Jesus gives a hard teaching to the crowd, and the crowd decides, you know what, we're done with him. We're going to leave and he turns to the 12 disciples and he says, what about you guys? You heard the teaching. Do you wanna leave as well? And who answers them? It's Peter. Here's what he says in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter was the only one, as far as we know, to see Christ for who he actually was, the Holy One of God. And now, the Holy One of God kneels before him in the form of a slave to wipe the grime off of his feet. Do you wash my feet? Peter says. Verse seven, Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Jesus says, if you want to belong to me, Peter, I must wash you. No one enters my kingdom without first being washed. And that's when Peter responds in verse nine, Lord, if that's the case, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So what's going on here? Jesus is enacting a sign in the midst of his disciples. If you belong to me, if you want to belong to me, you must first be cleansed. That's the meaning of the sign. In order to help them understand that, he dresses as a slave, washes their feet. Now, parenthetical remark, there are some traditions within Christianity who interpret this act of foot washing as a sacrament, like along the same lines as baptism or uh, the Lord's Supper. But I would argue that's not what Christ is doing here. Remember how the story began. Christ is contemplating his own glory, his favored position in the kingdom, because his hour had come. And the hour, as we have seen over and over in the Gospel of John, if you've read it, is a reference to his coming death and resurrection in Jerusalem. So here, Christ kneels down to serve his disciples in the lowliest possible way in order to prepare them for an even greater service that he will soon perform on their behalf. He'll stand trial before the Sanhedrin. He'll be mocked. He'll be treated with contempt. He will be made to carry a cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the place that is called the Skull. And there he will be crucified. He'll do this for the forgiveness of their sins. And there, hanging naked, dying a criminal's death, atoning blood will flow from his wounds to cleanse all who believe in him and to make them fit to enter the throne room of God and to call him Father. It is by that cleansing which the foot washing is only a small picture of, a sign pointing beyond itself to the greater reality of the washing that Christ will accomplish on the cross. It's by that cleansing that Christ's disciples are given life eternal. And the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will do it. So in other words, Peter, if you can't bear to have me serve you here on my knees with, my, with your feet in my hands, how will you possibly bear the weight of my ultimate service to you now that my hour has come? The kingdom of God. Listen, the kingdom of God does not open its doors. Jesus is saying to the upright in character or to the righteous indeed. The kingdom of God opens its doors only to those who have been cleansed by the servant of the Lord. He says, "If I don't cleanse you, you have no part with me, no inheritance, no share." with me." So that's the pattern of Christ's service to his own people. To become a slave, to wash them at the cost of his own life, that's the pattern. Now, let's consider number two, the scope of Christ's service. So after Jesus had finished performing his sign, He puts his clothes back on, he sits at the table, and he interprets the meaning of it for his disciples. Listen, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do to one another just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. When he says that, it's a sign to listen. Truly, truly, I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, Christ said, blessed will you be if you do them. Now I've been arguing that the foot washing was a sign of a greater cleansing that would occur later as Christ was crucified. So Jesus is not saying here that we are to go die like him for the sins of the world. That's not the scope of our service because we are not in that way like Christ. He was the only one who could possibly do that. Besides, he doesn't say, do you understand how to perform this right? Rather, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? This is about the cleansing that Christ will give. Therefore, the scope of our service, Jesus says, is this. Serve one another as I have served you, just as I have served you. Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure if there is anything closer to the heart of our calling as Christians than this, to be servants of God to one another and to the world. My friend Daniel Rickett was fond of saying, what am I, at the end of the day, but a servant of God? That's it, it's true. And what length are we to go in order to fulfill the service to our brothers and sisters and our families and neighbors? How how far do we take this? Well, if the Lord of glory can dress as a slave and do the work as a slave, then there is no task too low for us to perform as an act of service to our neighbor. And look, I I could start at this point listing particular things that we could do to serve one another, but I, I really don't have to because we all know the tension that comes when the opportunity arises to serve someone else right? You know what I'm talking about? Like um, a child needs help, help with their homework, but you know, I'm tired. Man, worked all day. An elderly parent needs a light bulb changed. I just wanted to take a nap. That customer requires you to hold their hand yet again, and you have other customers that need attending to. Like we are presented with occasions to serve other people a thousand times a day. And we all know what it feels like to think, not right now, I don't have time. Someone else would be better suited to that task. And Jesus, listen, Jesus meets us in those moments and kneels before us in the garment of a slave. He takes our feet and our hands and he says, do you understand what I've done to you? There is no task beneath your dignity. There is no act of service that is not worth your time and mine. What are we at the end of the day but servants of God? But Jesus doesn't expect us to grind the unwilling gears of our will and just do it. He actually brings to this work of serving one another, he brings that work into beatitude. Verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Now, years ago, I read a story that has always stuck with me and It comes comes from a book uh, by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. He tells the story of paying a visit to the great writer and speaker, Henry Nowen. If you don't know his name, let me just assure you, the man is brilliant. He really is. He was educated at Harvard. He's a prolific author of books. And, you know, most of them being spiritual guidance for Christians. He's a powerful speaker. And at the height of his influence. At the height of his career and celebrity, he gave it all up. And he moved to a community for disabled people called Daybreak, where he cared day and night for his friend Adam. I'll let Yancey take it from here. And this is a longer passage. I'm told by the folks in the back, it's like eight slides. But, and this is almost a sin of public speaking, you don't do that. But I I hope that you'll find it's worth it. It is a magnificent story. Listen. Nowen describes his friend. Adam is a 25-year-old man who cannot speak, cannot dress or undress himself, cannot walk alone, cannot eat without much help. He does not cry or laugh. Only occasionally does he make eye contact. His back is distorted, his arm and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy and, despite heavy medication, sees few days without grand mal seizures. Sometimes, as he suddenly grows rigid, he utters a howling groan. On a few occasions, I've seen one big tear roll down his cheek. It takes me about an hour, hour and a half to wake Adam up, give him his medication, carry him to his bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth, dress him, walk him to the kitchen, give him his breakfast, put him in his wheelchair and bring him to the place where he spends most of his day with therapeutic exercises. On a visit to Nowan in Toronto, this is Yancey speaking, I watched him perform that routine with Adam. And I must admit, I had a fleeting thought as to whether this was the best use of his time. I have heard Henry Nouwen speak. I have read many of his books. He has much to offer. Could not someone else take over the menial task of caring for Adam? When I cautiously broached the subject with Nouwen himself, he informed me that I had completely misinterpreted what was going on. I am not giving up anything, he insisted. It is I, not Adam, who gets the main benefit from our friendship. Then, and began listening for me, all the benefits that he has gained. The hours spent with Adam, he said, have given him an inner peace so fulfilling that it makes most of his other more high-minded tasks seem boring and superficial by contrast. Early on, he sat beside that helpless child man. He realized how marked with rivalry and competition, how obsessive was his drive for success in academia and Christian ministry. Adam taught him that what makes us human is not our mind but our heart, not our ability to think but our ability to love. And all during the rest of our interview, Henry now encircled back to my question as if he could not believe I could ask such a thing. He kept thinking of other ways that he had benefited from his relationship with Adam. Truly, he was enjoying a new kind of spiritual peace acquired not within the stately quadrangles of Harvard, but by the bedside of incontinent Adam. Jesus said, blessed will you be when you serve one another. And now when found that despite all of his worldly acclaim and recognition, that entering into the beatitude of service to Adam was the most fulfilling act that he had ever given himself over to. Now, the great danger of telling a story like that is that it's very dramatic. You know, a man gives up everything who would otherwise, like he gives up everything for a man, to serve a man, who would otherwise by society be considered almost refuse. He has no use in the greater scheme of things, that's what the world thinks. And that can have a way of actually, yes, inspiring us, but also simultaneously discouraging us. Well, if that's the standard, that's so far beyond me, I'll just be moved by the story and then go on with my life. But the point is not to quit our jobs and go move into daybreak like now and did. That's not the point. It's rather to illustrate the beatitude of service. Blessed are you, Jesus says, if you do these things. Whenever an occasion for service arises and that voice that is contrary to it arises in our minds, let the voice of Jesus also rise to oppose it. Blessed are you if you do these things. Blessed are you when you serve one another. After all, what are we at the end of the day but servants of God? And that brings us to our third point, the power to serve like Christ. Now, if you're feeling a little helpless at this point, that means you're hearing me properly. (laughs) How, how, how in the world am I supposed to do this? How in the world can I kneel in the dust and serve those who have been given to me to serve? There is no upper or lower limit on my service because Jesus said, I have given you the example that you should also do as I have done. Like how, how in the world can we be faithful to that kind of example? It's unthinkable. Well, to answer that question, I want to return to Peter. After Peter refuses Christ's act of service to him, Remember what Jesus said in verse seven? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Christ's act of service during that meal, the washing of the feet, that act is a mystery to Peter. But Jesus says, there will come a day when you understand it, and that day is coming soon. So after this moment, Christ announces that one of his disciples will betray him to death. And you remember what Peter says? He says, oh, no, it won't be me. I would never betray you. I would die before I handed you over to the authorities. And Jesus, in response to that bravado, says, no, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you know me three times. Not once, not twice. You will deny me three times. But Peter is emphatic, you know, going so far as to contradict the one that he previously called the Son of God. He says, No, no, I will never deny you. We know what happened. A mob comes to arrest Jesus, and all the disciples flee for safety, except for Peter. He follows his Lord at a distance, all the way to the house of the high priest, where Jesus is standing trial. And Peter finds himself in a couple of uncomfortable situations, and he ends up thinking it would be better to say to those around him that he is not associated with Jesus so that he can remain undercover and therefore close to his Lord. That makes sense to him. Three times he makes the claim that he doesn't know Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And the gospel writer tells us that Jesus, right in the midst of his trial, hears the rooster crow, and he turns and he looks at Peter. And at that moment, Peter knows, he knows what he has done. And that's when we read perhaps one of the most heartbreaking verses in the entire scriptures as far as I'm concerned, it says, and Peter broke down and wept. Like sobs shook his whole body. How could he have done this? And that's where we leave Peter, until the day of Christ's resurrection. On that day, on that day, some women come to the tomb of Jesus. But they found no body to anoint. Instead, they found an angel who said this to them. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. This is Mark chapter 16. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But listen, but go, the the angel says, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. like did you hear that? Peter. Now, of course, angels are just messengers. Where did the angel get that message to give to these women to these women? He must have gotten it from the risen Christ himself. And I, this is not in the Bible, but I just imagine Christ on the first day of his glorious resurrection, having conquered death, having inaugurated the age to come, sits down with this angel and he has Peter on his mind. He says, make, make sure that they tell Peter that I've been raised. Don't forget Peter. (sighs) And in John's Gospel, we have the account of that meeting between the resurrected Jesus and Peter. Jesus asks him, do you love me? And he asks Peter this three times, once for each of his denials. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, yeah, Peter, I know, I know you love me. And if you do, feed my sheep. In other words, if you finally understand, Peter, what it means for me to serve you, then go serve my people. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that Peter served the congregation of God for the rest of his life, even unto death, just as he had been served by Christ. And so I ask you the same question that Jesus asked Peter. Do you understand what Christ has done for you? Do you understand how he has served you? how he has cleansed you by the pouring out of his atoning blood so that you may be cleansed and that the doors of the kingdom of God may fling open at your arrival. Do you understand what he has done? If so, go forth into the beatitude of his service and find your blessing there because, after all, At the end of the day, what are we but servants of God? And that leads us to the table of Christ. Christ uses these elements to serve us. He has set this table in anticipation that we would come and that we would feast with him. And he has come to serve us. And to remind us of the means by which he cleansed us, his body broken, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So come and be served by Christ and find your strength to return and serve the ones he has given you to serve. Let us pray. Father, what are we but servants of God? We are the ones who have been served by Christ. We are the ones who have been washed clean by his blood. And if we show up at the doors of your kingdom, if we show up into the vaunted halls of your throne room, we would hide our faces we would cower in fear if it, were not, if it were not for Jesus, who takes our hand and says, fear not. The Father loves all that I bring to him. So, Father, will you grant us that grace to be convinced and to know the service of our Lord so that we may serve others. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Brothers and sisters, this is the meal that God has set for us in anticipation of our arrival. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ.